0: hi there this is eli altman coming to you from oakland california so what are we going to listen to uh this is a four-part podcast mini-series based on my 2018 book run studio run Uh, if you haven't heard of run studio run uh, i wrote it as a way to help people manage and grow their small creative studios in addition to my own experience running 100 monkeys I interviewed studio leaders from Draplin Design Company, Moniker, Manual, Hey Studio, Commercial Type, and more about how they manage their studios and what they've learned. So for me, this is the next step for one-on-one interviews with interesting studio leaders from around the US about how they got to where they are and what they've picked up along the way. Okay, let's get into it.
1: It's a false metric of success, and you, you hear and you see this happen all the time. How could they go out of business? There were 700 people. I'm like, how could they not go out of business? They were 700 people. So you think having 700 people means the owners must be making a ton of money. No, they have a ton of ulcers. That's, I, I do know that. And in, in any minute now, it's, if, if they have two bad clients or two bad quarters, they're going to have to lay off half the team. That's the way it's going to be.
0: That's Chris Doe founder and CEO of the future, really interesting learning platform for designers, um, that covers, you know, everything from typography and how to make a logo to, uh, how to price your services and, uh, how to handle presentations. And, you know, Chris has an interesting, uh, story where he's kind of transitioning from being a designer, being a, a professor at art center in Otis to, you know, taking this education part of the, uh, the job online and getting in front of the people, be it with, you know, YouTube live streams, Instagram, everything, you know, uh, one of the most interesting things I, I took out of the conversation with Chris was really Figuring out your your sort of feedback loops and feedback cycles Um, How do you understand what your audience is responding to? Uh, What's gonna work? What isn't Um, and how do you really, you know build that into a a meaningful relationship where? um, People are really getting a lot out of your work, and it's you know improving careers and improving lives So I was kind of I was doing some research on you for this interview Mm -hmm. and it was actually really difficult because you have so much stuff out there, but Mm -hmm. you spend all your time helping other people.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So it's like, (laughs) (laughs) I I know, I know a lot about how you help people, Mm -hmm. but I know not a ton about you. That's true. Um, And so I'm curious, just like early days. How how you got into this? Like, w- what made you want to be a designer?
1: Mm-hmm. I I think I've always wanted to be a creative person, and it's because I lacked talent and other things that I I guess by default became a designer. Initially, my dream and my introduction into the world of art and design was through skateboarding, mm-hmm. and I, I'm I'm one of those weird dudes because I would go to the skate shop, and I'm I'm like t- trying to figure out what's what skate deck I want to buy. And most people are like, you want to try it? I'm like, no, I just need to stare at the graphics. And I'm pretty sure the, the, the kids that were working behind the counter at Pacific Sunwear or Ghost Skate <laughs> were looking at me like, this kid comes in here every day, you know, in the mall and he never buys anything, he just stares at the boards. And I was like, oh, you know, uh, back then, Vision Streetwear or Vision Skateboard, Santa Cruz and Powell were the three big manufacturers before there was a ton of sub brands and things like that. Yeah. I would just stare at the graphics. I'm like, give me that board. And then I later on realized you must buy a skateboard not for the graphics and the colors, but for the shape and how it feels relative to the style in which you ride.
0: Yeah, i mm-hmm. I had a very similar early skateboarding experience where yeah. i was I was taken over by the graphics and wound up getting a deck that was both uh, too wide and mm. too thick and heavy. <laughs> And and then, so it took me like a year to figure out how to ollie. I mean, this yeah. is like before YouTube, but like, yeah, that's that's an important lesson that that graphic design can be too alluring for its own good.
1: Right. But I also now have learned that a lot of designers and artists, the gateway drug is skateboarding.
0: Huh. What yeah. do you think that
1: is? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think like maybe... It's a solitary experience, generally speaking. It's not a team sport, yeah. and for the longest time, skateboarding is like this kind of outcast, rebel thing. So there's something about that. So the 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 sport itself attracts a certain kind of person. You know, Rodney Mullen is one of these weird, introspective dudes who can ramble on about really intelligent things, but he's kind of an awkward guy. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's that part of it. But uh, to bring it back to like wh- how this pulled me into the art was. I think I signed up for Paul Peralta's uh, zine and they had a competition because they were looking for their next big artist. And I think his name is Sean Cliver. He won that competition and we got to see his portfolio and his journey. And he's still in the industry today and he does wonderful work. And I wanted to do that work, but I didn't have the discipline. I didn't have the training to draw the way that my heroes drew. That's why I say like, okay, so I didn't do that. I didn't do comic book art for the same reason. I'm not that good. I didn't put that, that energy and effort that people do to get there. So the next best thing, I think, was graphic design. I could draw better than most graphic designers but and, and, and not as good as illustrators, obviously, but that was enough.
0: Did you ever end up getting to do a deck?
1: The closest I came was working on snowboard designs for, okay. for a company called Oxygen Skates or Oxygen Boards or something like that, yeah.
0: I feel like at this point now, you could easily just... I mean, you you could do a whole line of decks.
1: I think I could. And <laughs> I've done some designs just for fun and bringing all the different design disciplines that I've learned into skateboard design. I think it's different and unique and interesting. I, mean, I posted some of them on my Instagram account.
0: Huh. So I know you have your own design firm, Blind. You have Future mm-hmm. where you uh, educate... America's and the world's graphic design youth, um, and and also professionals, I imagine. And I'm curious, one, how those businesses go together, if they go together, like Uh what the relationship is, Uh um, and kind of how that's evolved for you over time.
1: Sure, I think for a long time these were two very separate entities. Blind is a service design business that our normal our, our most common client is an advertising agency, creative directors art directors doing very high-end bespoke work the the probably the average project rate is probably somewhere between two to six hundred thousand dollars for a 30 second commercial or we would make super high-end music videos The pay was a lot less but it was very artistic yeah and when we started making content for the future, it really was like let me share what I've learned to help people who are just coming up in the world or are interested in design, but want to see how an LA based design studio would make things. And that's the kind of content we put out. I never thought that these two worlds would overlap. And it wasn't until much later on years after we started the channel that I started to bump into people who own advertising agencies, who were the design directors, who were partners at a firm. Yeah. uh, That they would say in private to me at a party or function, like, Hey, I love your channel. And not to sound creepy to you, but my wife and I, we go to sleep with you. I'm like, what? <laughs> I love to watch your videos when, when we're in bed and we'll just sit there and we'll chat. Like, what is Chris up to?
0: How did you take that shift to education? Like that, I mean, because that's a different, it, there's certainly overlap, right? Like we're talking about, but teaching people, sharing your experience is fundamentally different than selling work. How did you make that shift? Like, what what was it like to go from creating work for clients to mm. sort of turning those people into your audience?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is a big thing. This is a really big thing. In the very beginning, I was worried that creating content in the future actually damaged our client work, because if people have watched our channel before, they know I tell stories. Uh, you know, you talk out of school kind of thing. I I tell them the exact tactics and how to respond to when people say. We don't have that kind of budget or you're not the right kind of person for us. I teach them these things. So I'm thinking, man, I'm going to burn some bridges. And at the beginning, it was it was done in measured steps. It wasn't like day one. Here's all my secrets here. How I hate my clients or here are the clients that I love. Right. can not start like that. You get a little bit more uh, courage and you get braver as you go. But at a certain point, we get on a conference call and um, the, the executive producer and the creative directors, they're in the room telling me, Chris, they're fans of yours. I'm like, oh, shoot they're fans of ours that means they know every trick i'm going to pull on them as we're like how do you play chess against yourself when they know the move you're going to make this is really tricky and the weirdest thing happened we get on the phone we say hello we, we say like what do you guys have in mind and they talk on and on and on for like 20 minutes straight the whole time we barely say anything and they're saying my part for me and answering it for them and then we get off the phone and, and I look at Scott, who's my executive producer at the time. He's like, what just happened? And I smiled. They just sold themselves to us, to themselves somehow. And I think it's just our job if we want it. And we didn't even have to say anything. So a lot of times you have these fears like, you know, this is this is crazy. It's not going to work out. And sometimes it's true. But more often than not, it's not true.
0: <laughs> I so know. that was
1: a really cool moment.
0: I had a very similar fear when I did the first edition of Don't Call It That, which is like, am I teaching people how to do my job so they don't, so they won't hire me to do it? Right. But And getting over that was instrumental because, yeah, like that happens all the time where people call me and will be explaining their naming issue, but they're like explaining it in my vocabulary. I'm right. Like, where did you get that? Oh,
1: because <laughs> you bought
0: my book. That's, right, right. that's, that's awesome. awesome. Um, it's just, it's, it is, it's so unexpected. It's like, you kind of, maybe it's just this thing where you're always kind of looking for how something's going to bite you in the ass. And then, you know, like, if you believe in the positives there, there can be like much more upside than what you could lose out on.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fundamental human trait and flaw that we focus way more on what we have to lose versus what we have to gain. Yeah, for sure. Right. Because if you think about it, you and I could sit there and laugh about it right now. But it's obvious this would be the result because you're training clients how to work with you because they read your book. They watch your videos and that's how it works. And if they hated it, they wouldn't call you. Exactly. And you just save yourself a lot of time and grief of getting on the phone call and not having a, a job out of it. Right? Yeah. That.
0: <laughs> so one particular like component of this I'm really curious about is like, you know, when you do client work, the feedback's obvious, right? They're yeah. telling it to your face. And you may agree with it, you may disagree with it, you may sort of work over specific points and like get to, you know, a, a place where everybody agrees on what the next steps are. But when you're teaching people it's different, you're relying on different feedback mechanisms and you know when you get into the comment section that's like a whole different beast than hearing you know hearing feedback from one person so i'm curious like what feedback mechanisms you really trust and how you know if something's working how you know it's resonating with your audience cuz i know you have a really big audience and so you can't listen to everything so like how you know how do you parse
1: right this is very good so here's what i think when you work with clients especially if it doesn't work out, like they wind up going with a different firm. They rarely ever tell you the truth because social contracts, standards, norms say you don't really want to tell people how you really think and feel because you don't want to be a jerk about it. That's what they think. What they don't realize is they rob you of actually meaningful, truthful feedback so that you can adapt. For example, uh, and and this was told to me uh, only after a client says, uh, only after I fired somebody, okay? They said, thank God you fired that person because I would have never given you another job because I can't stand that person. Mm. And I was like, well, when were you going to tell me that when when no work came anymore and we're out of business? It was just coincidental that uh, I was having some issues, too. And then that person came back and then they started telling me all these stories about how they were just a horrible person to work with and they didn't reflect my values. So there's that part. So. On the internet, it's fairly anonymous. And you know, everybody gets really brave on the internet, yeah. for better, or for worse. So they will tell you whether or not it's true or not, how they feel in that moment. So it's pretty raw. So let's just take a moment. So to them, that's the truth and that's the reality and that's okay. And they're much more brave and unfiltered than they would be in face-to-face, sure. uh, normal conversation. So just keep that in mind when you read that feedback. There's a lot of raw energy there. Some of it's true and some of it's not. And you have to kind of parse through that. That's only one form of feedback. The feedback that never lies to you are the metrics. So a video comes out, YouTube will tell you it's ranked uh, 1 through 10 or off the chart, like meaning horrible, relative to your 10 best performing videos in the same amount of time being uh, listed. So that's kind of important. The minutes viewed are important. The spikes that you see on the retention graph really tell you like, oh, we lost most of them at the beginning, even though we got 100,000 views. Most of them did stay past minute two. So if we're going to teach something, we're going to teach it up front because they're not sticking around. Conversely, some other videos, it's kind of like a flat line, which is good Mm. because they're not really leaving. So whatever you did that video, you did a really good job. So it's a combination of raw, unfiltered emotional feedback and cold, hard analytical numbers that you can look at and say, okay, we have an idea if this worked or not.
0: So then, I mean, what are the, the biggest takeaways at this point of like what really works and what really doesn't?
1: I, I probably should not admit this, but here we go. I think if I put a lot of energy and effort into it and I really think about the learning outcomes, those videos tend to do really well. And mm. uh, The ones where we show up and we answer questions, you're only good, as good as the question that you get. So then sometimes it's valuable and sometimes it's not. But what we do also realize is that, generally speaking, shorter videos that are cut to have one topic, one main idea, tend to perform better. Mm. So when we do a live stream, we're bouncing all over the place. So we don't even know what to call it. Chris gets real. It's like, okay, what does that even mean? (laughs) Nobody's searching for is Chris real, (laughs) right? But if you talk about a client negotiation and that bit, and it got really hot, cut that bit, put it up as a standalone edit and spice it up some graphics and music and uh, sound design, you may have yourself a hit and that's usually what we do.
0: You're getting feedback from a bunch of different places at the same time, right? Like you're seeing metrics, you're seeing comments, you're yeah. hearing from people on, you know, various channels like, yes. yeah, it's sort of, it really does highlight the lack of feedback you get in the majority of a creative life. Right. And like, yeah. some people probably don't want to hear it, you know, I imagine. Yeah. But I like, don't know.
1: I think they want to hear love. But they just don't like to hear the negative.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right? Everybody likes the good feedback.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think you grow much more in the negative feedback. That's why to this day, I still read most of the comments and I reply to most of them. Mm -hmm. I I just remembered something. I didn't answer your other question, which was like adapting to making video content. And I just wrote a note down here. I just saw it. So, yeah, what do you got? (laughs) So, almost all of my life since uh, I was old enough to do something for somebody else, it's always been for somebody else in graphic design. So, I've done this for over two decades. I never felt like I could own the title of artist i'm a graphic designer i do something for money i'm trying to solve a problem and they're not my own problems the difference here on the video stuff is nobody told me to make that video Mm. i get to get inspired to write what i want to write to put out whatever kind of content i want to put out there very much like an artist it doesn't look like art because it doesn't hang on a wall and people don't stare at it like that but it's my art and over time I got comfortable with wearing that label. So these videos are my form of artwork, just like the podcasts are. I just get to make whatever it is that I want. And sometimes the audience shows up for it. And sometimes it's a dud and I get that. So sometimes people come on the show and they say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you change that? I said, well, man, if you really wanted to do that, make your own freaking video because this is my video. Yeah. And I'm not going to not do client work. I'm not going to give up my free time and energy and resources to make something only to serve somebody else's agenda. I'm not doing that. And if this video sucks, I will learn and I'll make a better video or I won't, but that's up to me. So there's this inherent pleasure and joy of being able to do something devoid of trying to please somebody else. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I think that's something that is even for artists can be really hard to come by. Um Because once you get known for something, once a certain type of work sells, or if you're a musical artist, you know, once people get used to like a particular style, right, then that's what people expect from you. That's what they want. And anytime you attempt to deviate from that course, you you know, people try to knock you back in your lane. Um, And it feels like there's something about this media or this medium in particular that like gives you the freedom to be able to throw something out there. Doesn't work. Okay. You know, next up.
1: Yep. Very true. Yeah. I mean, and that's the free. thing about audience and their expectation, once they become attached to you, they'll start to, I mean, they feel they have ownership over you and it can be a tricky thing. And you know this too. It's like we fall in love with a band. And if they have figured out their formula, we like their formula. And when they do something weird, new, and different, there are exceptions, of course. Then we feel like, no, just go back to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. We want more of the same, but just a little bit different. Uh, where I say there's an exception, like something like Kanye West from album to album, he seems like he's a different person and the audience goes along for the ride and Radiohead's the same way. It's like, whoa, I thought you were like full on rock band. Now you're doing electronic. Mm-hmm. This is really cool.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, that's kind of the mark of a true artist, right? That it's just like all about trying to have that impact, trying to reinvent yourself, trying to get to a new place. It's like yeah. design is, is a little, you know, when, when there's a client you're responsible to, it always feels like a bit of a different animal.
1: Yeah. You know what I think it is, too, that people like um, Tom York and and Radiohead and and Kanye West, forget about his political Mm -hmm. affiliations and his craziness, but as an artist, as a a musician, they are so good, both of them. And they're on the diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of musical genres, but they're so good that they're like, you know what, let me try and sing. (laughs) Totally can't sing, but I know how to make everything else work, so you'll still love it. And that's like a musician isn't defined by the instrument. The, the artist makes the music and the instrument is just a vehicle. That's why you have these people banging on buckets and pans on the street. And like, wow, that's really good. Because <laughs> they understand fundamentally what sounds good, what looks good, and what you're going to connect to. And so it doesn't matter. Give them anything. They'll make something great.
0: I love that. I'm curious about your move into product. And how, okay, so it's one thing to make videos for people and, and let me know if I'm getting like the chronological order of this off, but it, it felt like you sort of, you did a lot of video, you did a lot of educating, and then you started to get into, into, you know, selling product to this audience. So like what, what led you to that and how did you know it was the right move?
1: Yeah. So the chronological order of this is I taught at art center for 15 years before I made even a, a single video. And we made videos because my partner at that time uh, wanted to sell product. He had one course, one really great course that's life-changing. And he's like, let's make videos. We have to make content to build awareness. It's top funnel of awareness stuff and things I didn't even know anything about. That's a whole nother lexicon of, of ideas and, and language and business that I was not familiar with. We had a sales rep sell the commercial we pitch the work we win the work we produce it and we we repeat it over and over again so it's like funnel we got to build a funnel I'm like what what are we talking about so we do what most people and and to, and to this day still do is build content that dovetails into a course or a book that you want to sell a workshop and the content typically is very long-winded with little bits of value that's stacked at the end and jammed with story and other kinds of stuff while you need to learn it. And then they gave you a couple little nuggets at the end and then they drive you into some kind of email tripwire. And that's what we did. We created content that talked about ideas in the course that we were selling in hopes of pulling people in. And it was pretty transparent to us and to our audience what was happening. And we we're just not that good of marketers to pull it off. Guys like Ty Lopez or wherever else, they're very good at marketing so you're hooked into it and you buy their courses. And I just, I got tired of it because we weren't growing our audience and we weren't selling a ton of product either. So what was the point? And I'm just making videos for cheap with no results. Yeah. So the big breakthrough for us is I wanted to just make a video. There was nothing to sell. I just wanted to give and give generously as much as I could. And so at this point already, I'm like 18, 19 years into my experience I've read a few books. I've taught for 15 years. So let me share. Let me share with you what I have learned. And I didn't think like, and and I think this is pretty common. It's not a big deal. We put that video out. The trajectory of that video, the views, the comments, it changes everything. We're not talking about viral hit, but relative to what we were looking at in terms of like having 50 views versus 400 views, it was a big jump. It was an exponential jump in terms of engagement. So that was the first signal to me that, hey, man, if you're going to make a video, decide what the video is for. And if you're not into selling your wares, then it better have something else. And that video was the first video that I sat down and spent six to 10 hours writing and preparing graphics for, and it worked. And so those videos tend to still, to this day, if I kind of put six to eight hours of my life and time into something... Generally speaking, it's going to get views.
0: And then how did you get back into product? Like, okay. What was there? There was like a big, like, so you, so, okay. So you started there and then you went away from it and then you. I went away from it. Okay.
1: And then you know what? My partner and I got into fights about it. Huh? He said, Chris, what are you doing, man? This isn't selling anything. I'm like, yeah, I know it's all right. And here's the thing. And I don't blame him because I had another company that was making me millions of dollars. I didn't need this art form to make me more money. It wasn't necessary for me. While for him, it was everything. He was literally living off the revenue generated from the products we were selling. Hmm. So ultimately, this drove a wedge between the two of us. And I said, man, the audience is worth everything. And I was in long tail audience building mode, long term, long range thinking. And he was like, dude, I'm how, I need to make money. Right. So his motivation and it was very real because he didn't have a second plan to fall back on, which, you know, I I had plenty of runway and didn't even worry about it. So there there's the the rift that started to form between us. And ultimately, we split up at this point. I don't have any product, but I told him at the beginning of our relationship, if this doesn't work out, I keep the audience of the community. You keep the product and the revenue. And so when we split up, it was difficult emotionally and everything else. So now I got what? I got I got to start over. But I have the community and I have the channel. So now it's like, what can I do? And this is the cool part. They're ready and they're ready to buy. So we launched our first class, which is on topography. And I think we did $100,000 in sales. And now I think it's over $500,000 in sales in, in gross revenue and this is a product that sold, I think, at one time for sixty nine dollars. Huh. Like, how many things did we have to sell at sixty nine dollars to get here? It, it still blows my mind. Wow. Yeah.
0: There's so many interesting things to touch on there. I mean, you know, one to me is just about partnership and mm-hmm. and like aligned objectives, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. it seemed like the setup you had there is like him driving towards the thing that made him money. And, or the thing that he wanted and you driving right. towards the thing that you wanted and those things weren't headed in the same direction. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, you see so many creative partnerships like form and dissolve. It's like, you know, it, it's hard to tell whether that's like better or worse than the divorce rate in the US. But like uh, for at least from the stories I hear, it, it sort of, it seems like worse. Um, but what did that teach you about you know, what you needed for a successful partnership or was the takeaway more like, I don't want a partner. I want to do, you know, do my own thing.
1: The takeaway was I don't want a partner.
0: Yeah.
1: I've had partners more times than I'd I'd care to admit. And they've never worked out because it to find two people who want the same thing, who are willing to put the same two things into it and to get out of it. It's a very rare thing. And if I were to get a partner again, I didn't have to go through serious like matchmaking, uh, Uh, what is that called? Uh, Honeymoon, not honeymoon, like just courting courtship. That's what it's called. I'd have to do a lot of that before I'm like, let's go and do a partnership. Cause oftentimes it's like, Oh, you want to do something? I want to do something. Let's partner up. And that's really not enough. And I'll tell you how deep this even runs because I have multiple managers running different parts of my company. And we had a retreat last year and we talked about like what you care about. Like what is the thing that's making you frustrated and what is it that makes you happy? And To our collective surprise, we all wanted very different things. Mm. And I'll tell you, I'm going to be transparent about this. I let them all go first because I didn't want them to be influenced by what I say, right? Because I'm still the owner and the boss. Um, One person said, I just care that we make money because it's important. It's my personal responsibility to make sure we make money so we can pay everybody. And I feel like a failure if we don't make money. So naturally, the things that make me frustrated are when we do things that don't make us money. Because we're diverting resources away from things that I think can make us money. Fine. That seems pretty logical. Somebody else said, I really care about the quality of the things that we make. Because I feel like when we don't make it a, a like really super high quality, I feel like we're breaking promises. Huh. Okay. Third person goes, and there's only four people, myself included. Third person goes, I am concerned that we're burning out the team that we have different objectives and it's never super clear as to what we're doing. So the team keeps running, but they don't know how they're contributing and that's driving them mad. Okay, so maybe everybody's like, so Chris, what do you care about? And I said, I care about making a difference in the world. Money, I don't care. Uh, How it looks, I don't really care. And the team, they can't get with it, I'll find a new team. Because I need people to believe in the mission. It's like we're, we're, I'm not, I don't want to make false parallels here, but I feel like we dropped into like a war-torn zone and we're trying to uh, rebuild a village, you know, and it's really important work that we do. And yeah, there's going to be 16-hour days. Or yeah, we're going to build something that's going to break and it's not going to work. And we're going to build something else and it's not going to work. And it's what you signed up for. There's something much bigger uh, at stake here than whether or not we make a couple of bucks here or there or how it looks. And so that was a like a big eye-opening moment. And so we had four people managing relatively small teams because we're only like 12 people. So you can imagine, and I, this is a, a thing I warn clients about. If you have a five-ton block of granite and you want to build the pyramids, you can get there if everybody's pulling in the same direction. But the illustration is, imagine if there's a rope tied to this five-ton block of granite it's being pulled in four different directions simultaneously. Or we move it two feet this way one day. Next day, somebody pulls it two feet the opposite direction. And so it's constantly moving and it feels like we're using a lot of energy, but we're just not getting anywhere. And that's what it was. And so you can see if you had to be married to this partner that thought very differently, that wanted different things, it's not going to work. And I bet you if I ask eight people there's a good chance we'd have eight different answers just happened before. So it's like, is there only four different answers? No, I think there's probably a hundred different answers.
0: Yeah. I think that's something (laughs) we learned, you know, it's something we really implemented in our process is like, we work hard to limit the number of people client side who we're working with on a given project, because we know that more people equals more opinions. And when you're dealing with something as, you know, subjective as naming or writing, the number of opinions is always going to kill you. Um, And yeah, and you know, how much energy are you spending trying to get people aligned versus like, you know, versus doing that actual work? It's like, if you get everybody rowing in the same direction, you can go really far. Yeah. Um, but to your point, it's like, if you, you know, if you're just moving the block around a bunch of different ways every day, it's like, you're, you're busy. Yes. Like you might still be working those, you know, like 12 hour days, but like, you're not getting anywhere. So that has to be frustrating and be bad for morale and, you know, just not feel good.
1: Yeah, it doesn't, you know, and, and, and we have such limited resources to be pulling it all these different directions. So then after that retreat, I said, you guys, here's the new plan. We're going to do what I say. <laughs> we just have to. I'll take responsibility for everything. And so here's the thing. So you, you can't blame each person for wanting what they want because that's who they are. And they thought that that was how they were going to contribute to the company in the best way. They're all great people. That's why they're my managers, right? And this is where businesses get trapped a lot. And I'm, I'm really into innovation and disruption. And Clayton Christensen's book, he talks about this a lot. It's like companies do what's most profitable, what's most impactful to them. And they do more of it and they, they can innovate, but it's, it's like iterative innovation. They're making small tweaks and improvements. Where you get messed up is somebody slams you, T-bones you in your business because they figured out something totally different and disrupts your whole business. And I like to describe ourselves as a disruptive business because education, public schools, private schools, they've been doing it a certain way and they're doing really well, sort of. And then we come in and it's like, I think we can do it better. It's not as good. It's cheaper. It's not as deep. But it's a whole different kind of customer that we're going to get. And eventually the revenue that we're going to generate, it's going to surpass these traditional brick and mortar schools. And then either we buy them or we put them out of business.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the sort of education and business side of it is really interesting to me. And, and like, definitely something I wanted to ask you about because I think, you know, like I went to design school, like the number one thing, I think I heard from people who went to design school is they don't teach you anything about how to run a business. Um, that there's, there's no business education in design education. It's, you know, it, it's pure, it's typography, it's layout, it's color, uh, you know, and, and yet it doesn't really seem to be changing much. Like you hear about the occasional, you know, course here and there, but then I look at your offering, right? And like the videos you're putting up, the courses you're putting up, and it feels like a pretty good mix between, okay, this is how you design something and okay, like this is how you do the business of design. Um, Mm -hmm. Does it feel like there's still that thirst for the sort of business side education? Like, is that something people are really still looking for? Or like, is it more fundamental where people are really like, you know, I I know your like typography videos, one of your, you know, your most popular ones. So like, how how do you Mm -hmm. see the difference between like educating designers on design and educating them on business?
1: yeah. There is a thirst for this, and this is where we will make our name or go down in flames, for sure. The thing is, schools, they recognize that they have to teach more, but they're running into issues about what they have to teach in order to give people a degree, right? So they have to have a certain amount of liberal arts, humanities, history, and they, they start doing this, and they have issues, too, with scale and capacity, they have one teacher who teaches something, and and she is amazing. She's the most gifted teacher that they have. But she can only teach 20 students at a time, and the incoming student body might be 60. So that means they have to fill it with other teachers who are, are less than. I'll just say it like that. Less experience. Uh, it doesn't have the same ability to recognize a problem or communicate or inspire their students. And so now you have filler teachers, and then you have filler classes. So what are you getting? So at the end of the day, they would like to bring entrepreneurship and business because for many people, that's going to be how you're going to be able to make money in the world. And you're going to have to interface with a business unit. And you need to at least be able to be conversant in the language of business. Who are they going to get to teach that? Well, they can get some business person who's going to teach them textbook business stuff, but have no understanding of how this actually rates the creative stuff. And so it's kind of impossible. It's an impossible thing. And I recognize that. That's why we're fortunate. Because the more difficult it is to do what it is that we do, the more premium that we have in terms of our product. And this is some something people need to understand. You, The more specialized you become, the scarcer this skill becomes, the more value you generate in the world, right? So we, we do this. And we know that we're not too worried because there isn't a... Like Stanford has a D school for design for their business people, but I don't know of many, I I think there's one other school. Somebody told me, I need need to check out the program because I'm skeptical that there's not a B school for designers. There really is not because there aren't enough qualified people to teach it. They may not recognize that there's an interest and a need for this. And so they're going to ignore it, luckily for us.
0: Yeah, and that that leaves a huge opportunity. I mean, you know, th- to your point, this is something I talk about extensively in Run Studio Run. That like, if you're trying to do everything at the same time, if you're trying to compete with people doing, you know, logos and brand identity and you know, motion and everything, like you're never going to be great at all those things at the same time. Y- you know, you're not going to give yourself the opportunity to specialize, um, and so and people aren't going to know what to expect of you because they're going to look at your portfolio and see, you know, like all sorts of just varied stuff and not know you know where to take it i know like in one of your videos you were talking about the kind of ideo t-shaped person idea right that like you know your specialization is how people come to recognize you and sort of see that benefit and if you want to like work on other stuff in your free time or for fun great like have at it um but like you know unless you specialize in what you're doing, like you're not giving yourself an opportunity to get great at it. And you're not giving people an opportunity to recognize you for what you're doing.
1: Mm -hmm. There's so many problems. Uh, That's just a whole hour, three hour long conversation we can get into, but creative people we're divergent thinkers. We think repetition is boring. That's a way to kill your soul. And so we, we, we like variety and we think that that's how we express our true, creative value to the world it makes it very hard to hire you it makes it very difficult for you to attain true mastery and the counter argument to all of this always is but what about da vinci well if you're a once in a lifetime multi-generational kind of artist like that then by all means da vinci do your thing but what they don't realize is you're nowhere close to that you know, he's an inventor, a mathematician, artist, a sculptor, a painter. It's like, there's nothing Da Vinci couldn't do. And you're saying like in, and I, the test I give to them is this name, 10 Da Vinci's that have ever lived Yeah, and you can't even come up with 10. Well, and,
0: and the feedback is so important too. Like if he's getting feedback that he's great at all these things, then he might actually be. Um, you know, but if, if you're floundering, trying to like, see, you know, where you're getting bites and like, whether you want to be a motion designer or, you know, or production or, or whatever, like that's not being great at 10 things at the same time. Like you might have some of those skills, but like the feedback needs to match the effort. Um, and if it doesn't, that's probably an awesome indication that you should focus what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm curious. Well, there's a couple of things <laughs> I, I, I sort of want to get to with our, our little bit of time left. Um, you know, one of them is just an overview of your operation. Like, I'm really curious how you lay out your team um, and sort of how you got there.
1: Okay. Uh, we used to look at it like there's a, a, the business operations unit, which is to make sure inflow, outflow are good, bills are being paid, all that kind of stuff. There was a marketing division, a content division, and a product division. So product is really about making courses that people can buy. The thing that actually makes us money and marketing is about making sure that people who aren't totally aware or thinking about buying something that they're going to find it and pull the trigger. So that includes running campaigns, building landing pages and making sure the funnel is really nice and tight, making sure that there are good downloadable things that give them a good sample of what they're about to get doing edits and all that kind of stuff. That's that. And content, and there's a lot of overlap here. Content is really about building top of the funnel awareness that what you would describe our YouTube channel, LinkedIn posts, and on Instagram, just so that more people are finding out about what it is that we do to then pull them into a potential marketing campaign. And then uh, what was the other unit? Oh, just business. Yeah. So marketing, content, product, and uh, business. Yeah.
0: So that's, so you're saying you have 12 employees, you have four groups, Right. So like, is it three person, like three people, a group or like?
1: It's a little lopsided. Uh, Marketing and content have most of the humans, right? Okay. So marketing is a big part and marketing includes uh, people working on the website, social campaigns, our social media accounts, running uh, pay-per-click ads on Facebook and Instagram, retargeting campaigns. And so there are quite a, there are like four or five people working on that. And then content, just by the nature of content, writing, producing, editing, chopping up videos, posting, I have four editors working for me full time hmm. just to generate the content. And some people don't realize that because most creators on YouTube are usually a one-person operation.
0: Right, And in terms of your time across those areas, do you spend more of your time in sort of one of those buckets than the other, are you trying to like pretty evenly buzz around? Like what's your approach?
1: No, I, I almost spend all my time on content. I don't do any of the marketing. They run ideas by me, but only for like the big things. Otherwise, all I care about for marketing is how much did we spend? How, how, lo- uh, how high was the conversion? And are we making progress? One should be going down to spend. The conversion should be going up and our customer base should be growing. So if you put a pink triangle or a purple horse on there and that works, I don't care. <laughs> if you use the wrong typeface, if you misspell it, I don't even care as long as people are converting. So I leave it to my teams. We have a, a gigantic heaping uh, scoop of autonomy. So we really focus on our goals. Like I have no idea who's working on what, when they do it, how many hours, if you can get your work done in four hours, fantastic, because you've hit your goals. And that's, that's mostly what we care about. And, and so I spend my time there. And uh, since Ben does all the operations to make sure we have business, we talk maybe once a month he's like, okay, here's how we did. And I said, okay, what, what needs fixing? What else can we do? And and oftentimes I might hear one or two ideas that I think, you know what, I like that. Pour gasoline all over that. Stop doing the other stuff. That's where I think we're gonna have a hit. Go there.
0: In terms of how you set up your goals, like is this mm-hmm. kind of is this annual? Is this quarterly? Do they sort of filter down? Like when when and how do those get created?
1: Yeah. So our our annual goals were pretty clear before. Like when we're on this massive growth surge we were doing more than 300% growth year over year. It you was know, it's amazing. And and Ben, the way that his mind works, he loves to build spreadsheets. He just loves doing these things. And I'm like, oh, you would have to just just <laughs> kill me before I have to do it, right? And he would say, look, we can't do quarterly projections based on an annual goal because I would assume all quarters are the same and they're not. We have two massive sales spikes during July and November. And that's where we see the maximum growth. And so what he did was he compiled data from every January that we've ever sold products Februarys, And then he would say, look, if our goal was to do 300%, this is where the goal should be. And historically, this is, you know, this is what's done. And this is what we'd have to do to be able to get there. And trying to grow a company 300% year after year, as you can imagine, is super stressful. And we did it for the first four years. So the fifth year, we we doubled. We didn't triple. Still, you know, I'm like, hey, guys, let's keep it in context here, you know, that's we're doing great people are thrilled for like single digit double digit we're like asking for triple digit growth it's it's a lot to ask so if we're able to grow 50 percent, i'm still fine with that you know but let's just keep growing
0: and are you trying to scale your team as you do that or are you trying to keep your team as small as possible while doing that
1: generally my philosophy is do as much as you can with as little as you have yeah because you can fall into this trap where you feel a slight discomfort because there's a extra little role that you have to do you hire somebody for that so they're not super busy neither are you and then you you wind up having this company where eh, it's kind of like not my thing i'm just gonna stay right here we we need to stay hungry we need to stay scrappy i don't think we need to grow in people necessarily we need to grow in courses we need to grow in revenue but not necessarily in people
0: yeah that makes i i couldn't agree more it's Mm -hmm. like there's this allure to a big studio uh And it's a fucking trap. Um, it, it's just, you know, people are or, like our overhead, our organization, um, you know, running a small village is not the same as running a city. Um, right. It's it's a completely different job. And you get divorced from the aspects of your work that you really enjoy when you just become a full time manager. And like, there's no way to go to that scale without really just
1: being a full time manager. Yeah. It's a false metric of success, and you you hear and you see this happen all the time. How could they go out of business? There were seven hundred people. I'm like, how could they not go out of business? They were seven hundred people. Yeah. So you think having seven hundred people means the owners must be making a ton of money? No, they have a ton of ulcers. That's (sighs) I I do know that. And in any minute now, it's if if they have two bad clients or two bad quarters, they're gonna have to lay off half the team. Yep. Yeah, you get. Yeah, because
0: you have customer concentration issues. Like if you're that big, you basically have to be over reliant on, you know, on particular customers in order to keep hitting those targets. And once they get bored of you or tired of you or don't like you or, you know, whatever natural process happens, uh,
1: then you're screwed. You just reminded me of something. The first two years in business, more than 70% of our revenue came from two customers. And this is how we work. Basically, we go whale hunting. We're not here catching the little uh, sardines we, we we starve for a long time we kill a whale and we eat for a really long time what happens when the whales go somewhere where you're not so within i think 45 days of each other both clients decided they're going to do things differently one wanted to in-house it because they realized they're spending so much money with us the other new marketing director wanted to hire their own team poo-pooed on us they did the old the, the broom the old broom they swept us out so that means that your business is very vulnerable. It is vulnerable to going out of business and unpredictable uh, spikes in, in in work and all kinds of stuff. Now we have thousands of customers. So if whole countries shut down, we're still okay because we have other countries that we sell to. And that's what we were thinking at the beginning of COVID before we realized it was going to be the impact of the juggernaut that it, it has become is we we're starting to see sales decline. And what Ben later on hypothesized, and we don't have enough data to support this, but he was saying as it was rolling across Asia towards the United States, our markets were shutting down Mm -hmm. because the US was pretty slow in responding. We all thought it's going to go right by us until like now we've become the epicenter. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I got three quick questions I want to ask you before we end it. Okay, um, and just kind of a, a bit more functional stuff, but I think really useful for people. Um, one is, what tools are you relying on?
1: The tools that I use most often are the ones that everybody uses. I use Keynote. I use Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop, and that's my magic three. Software-wise, in terms of web apps, I use a lot of Dropbox and Paper. Uh, The the team, they're they're fans of Notion, and I like Notion a lot. It's a little complicated for me. And so I like something that just writes really well. It's super clean so I can get my ideas down. And Paper has done a wonderful job also from Dropbox. And that's kind of it.
0: If you could give people one business book to read or one business resource that's not your own, where would you send them?
1: I'd send them to this one place. I would tell them if you want big picture thinking, life philosophy. I would read Seven Strategies for Wealth and Happiness by Jim Rohn. And I think that's the foundational book that most of who you look up to today have either studied under him or studied under somebody who studied under him. And that's critical. Jim Rohn, uh, I didn't know this until later on, was influential in transforming Tony Robbins' life. Brian Tracy, uh, Darren Hardy, Uh, All these writers that you've read about, they all mention Jim Rohn as his touch point. Mm. And so I like to go back to the source. And if there was a source behind Jim Rohn, I'd go to it, but he didn't write anything. It was his business mentor and he passed away early on. So Jim Rohn's the guy. Now, if you're in the design space and you're working and you do a lot of client direct work, not for agencies, but client direct work, the other book I'm going to have to recommend is The Win Without Pitching Manifesto by Blair Enns. It's been a fantastic book. It's a game changer. It involves pricing theory it involves um sales and negotiations but also things about marketing and positioning all neatly wrapped around i think 11 or 12 proclamations all right
0: i haven't read that yet i'm definitely going to go pick that up oh you got to check it and out you might have you might have my third question in the bud which is okay. uh role model if there's like one business person role model you look up to in terms of how they run their operation who would that be um
1: uh, this one's tough. I'm, I'm going to say in, in human form, my my mentor, uh, the person I, I had as my business coach for over 10 years, his name is Kier McLaren. He's still alive. He taught me pretty much everything I know about business. And, and it's through life and learning, not through books. Uh, this is through experience. And many of the ideas and philosophies I have are directly things that he told me that now I've become maybe one of his best students. Now, since then, I've read tons of books. And so I can't single out like that's the one book now or that's the one business mentor. Yeah. And I, I, I say this and and for people who are listening is there are a lot of business mentors out there. You need to find somebody who resonates with the way that you want to do things and is aligned to your values and the way you want to live your life. Some people will say grind and hustle and if you're a grind and hustle person, good for you. Go do that thing. Somebody else is about being very strategic or being an authority figure, then you do that. Yeah. And the other cool thing is you don't have to buy everything from them. I'm not talking about books and courses. What I'm saying is if they have seven good ideas and four lame ones, just take the seven, leave the four. Totally. And and people can't get over that. They're like, I don't like that one. I don't like their politics. I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to follow you. I said, okay. So this is cutting your nose off to spite your face. And that's your right to do. But I just don't think that that's the best course of action.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. Always awesome speaking with you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.